welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. Today, Katie and I are in conversation with Atar Zia, a political anthropologist, poet, and short fiction writer. She teaches at the University of Northern Colorado, Greeley, and is the author of Resisting Disappearances, Military Occupation and Women's Activism in Kashmir, and the co-editor of Resisting Occupation in Kashmir, and a desolation called Peace, Voices from Kashmir. She has published a poetry collection named The Frame, and another collection is forthcoming. Her ethnographic poetry on Kashmir has won an award from the Society for Humanistic Anthropology, and she is the founder and editor of Kashmir Lit and the co-founder of Critical Kashmir Studies Collective, an interdisciplinary network of scholars working on the Kashmir region. An ex-journalist, she continues to write for mainstream journals. Thank you so much for being here with us, Atar. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you and to have you share your views with our listeners at Feminifesto Podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor for me too. So a former journalist, a civil servant with the Kashmir government, um, a published author and a columnist, a poet, and now an academic. That's a massive repertoire. So could you take us through the story and where it all began? Uh, well, it all began in Kashmir. And um, I always wanted to be a journalist. I was always uh, in some form writing uh, for the newspapers. And you know how as uh, young people, they tried to dabble in everything and I was doing poetry. And then um, I did get a chance to uh, do a master's in journalism and also got a chance to join BBC and also was doing uh, some freelancing with different media organizations. Um, so. So that was kind of like the primary training I had. I wanted to be a journalist, but but as as when I became a journalist, I also realized that uh, I also had an activist side to me. And you know, when I was coming of age, Kashmir situation was the conflict was deepening. There was a lot of violence, and um, uh, human rights violations were something that had become such a stark reality in our lives. So I realized that uh, journalism is. Um, you know, very objective, you have to report and that's where it ends in a way. Not that you don't do great work, uh, you continue to report, you continue to go to the marginalized people and get their narratives, but at the same time, it, it is an in-depth work, it doesn't, let you, um, it doesn't let you engage the way you want to be. So, um, you know, then what, what happened was that I thought maybe uh, I'd by then also um, qualified this what used to be the Kashmir Administrative Services. It used to be a provincial, like you have the Indian Administrative Services. It's a provincial civil uh, service that people qualify for. And I had chosen to become a block development officer, which is the community development and all of that. I thought, you know, that could be some social political activism there. But uh, I was really... I was young uh, in those days and I didn't realize that a government job is a government job. I thought that I would keep my poet side alive and I could uh, you know, work for the people because that is after everything is said and done, community development and you get to work with marginalized people, work with people who are below poverty line, especially there are these schemes and policies that you take and you, have, you really have a chance to do something for the people hands on. Um, and I thought, um, you know, I could carry on being a writer, but it proved to be a very, very difficult task because once you get into government service, uh, you know, that's when I started thinking about the, uh, how as a Kashmiri I was different. I did not adhere to the idea of uh, India or being an Indian. And 
once you're in that situation what happens is that you kind of uh it's it's a you you're a bureaucrat and you have a certain ranking and suddenly you're kind of in the situation where where most of the policies and the schemes that you're delivering and uh taking to people it has the government of india name all along and that's what started kind of percolating in my mind and i kept thinking how long can i do this because it seems as if i'm representing a space uh, i'm representing a country when i'm doing all of these things and in the meetings and it kind of got very uncomfortable for me i did not want to be in that space and i also realized that uh, government jobs uh, red tape and corruption that was in the place where i could uh, you know flourish personally or i could not really deliver what i needed to so that was the time when i thought that uh, you know the best place for me would be you know where i could have a day job but at the same time i could be um, i could be writing and i could be actively engaging and researching uh, the kashmiri narrative because kashmiri narrative was totally uh, absent from talking about kashmir you had people who would trickle into kashmir who would pour into kashmir and they would talk to you and ask you about your situation and they would uh, be filmmakers they would be researchers they would be all kinds of people who wanted to write about kashmir especially journalists and i began to think that uh, there is uh, there's a lot of people who are writing about kashmir but there are no kashmiris who are really engaging with kashmir on an international level not that kashmiris were not writing about kashmir inside kashmir that's what they had been doing for the last 72 years but outside kashmir there were very very few kashmiri voices that were in the indian media and also very less kashmiri voices uh, on the international um, platform so to speak in the international scholarship you did not have many kashmiri voices so i think my generation there are a, more than a few people in my generation who kind of started thinking on those lines and we started making this foray into the world of western scholarship people had come into western scholarship before us but it was in a different way and i think by the time we grew up and we decided what we needed to do uh the time was ripe for us to start thinking about kashmir and maybe in an international forum uh um, you know be it academia be it journalism uh, be it uh, any kind of independent filmmaking i think the time was ripe for us to kind of begin talking uh, about a narrative so i'm talking about like 16 years back so that's when i kind of started coming back to academia and uh, realizing that uh, with academic freedoms there was there was a sufficient space for me to research kashmir do my field work and produce the kind of work i wanted and also you know be be in the space where you are a public intellectual you're not just sitting in the ivory tower of academia but you're also going out and you're talking to people and you're talking with people and you're talking for people and you're person you know talking about your own self basically because that's what we had wanted all along I think the part where you spoke about your disillusionment with the government—it's um, something that I find myself going through, um, albeit to a different extent and probably for different reasons. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing your experiences and telling us about your thoughts on Kashmiri scholarship and the need to put it on the world map. So, to put a bit of a magnifying glass on the academic front, your doctoral research focused on enforced disappearances, militarization. gender and human rights abuses in the indian administered kashmir can you take us through some of your key findings sure so when i was growing up um and forced disappearances in the early 90s there were one key form of punishment that was being meted out by the indian government 
and various organizations uh, were involved. Uh, the administration, of course, uh, it, there was a tacit arrangement that uh, these things are going to be happening and there would be no complaints that people would try to lodge. There would be no FIRs, the first information reports. If someone disappeared, uh, you know, you go to the police station and they do not entertain what you have to say. Uh, so what would happen was that uh, these, these, these enforced disappearances, they happen in a couple of different ways. Sometimes people would leave early in the morning, never return. Sometimes there would be a day, you know, daylight kidnapping, like you had uh, a contingent of soldiers or the county insurgents, the militia that was raised by the Indian government. They would just pick someone up from the roadside. There would be eyewitnesses most of the times, most of the times there wouldn't be, or sometimes people would be picked up and arrested from home, taken into custody, and later on, uh, the Indian government forces, they would uh, not uh, agree that the person was with them. Um, they would just have, uh, they would just appear as if uh, they had never taken the person. So those, all those kinds of things have happened. Uh, and in this army and the um, BSF, uh, and there are, um, you know, local police, everyone was involved. And the militia, which was, the, which basically is a vigilante group, a very notorious, also called the Akhwanis. They were also responsible for a lot of disappearances. So this was like one of the, you know, when you are growing up and you see people disappearing and you know uh, you had a neighbor that disappeared or someone that did that your parents knew disappeared. and that kind of started trickling around and being in the environment for us as we grew up. And then I also began uh, watching uh, the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, which was headed at that time by Parveena Ahangar and uh, Parvez Imroz, uh, a human rights lawyer together. Parveena's uh, son had been disappeared in 1994 and she knew which army battalion had taken uh, her son. And she had actually filed a case and she was fighting it. Uh, but she had no clue. Uh, so they had gotten together, and in 1994, Parvez Imroz, the human rights lawyer who was fighting these cases pro bono, and uh, Parvina Ahangar, they got together, and uh, they kind of formed this organization of Association of uh, Parents of Disappeared Persons. It was mostly mothers and also wives of the disappeared. And the Kashmiri media, for lack of a better word, it coined the word half widows for them, meaning that they don't know whether they are full widows or whether they are, you know, half, half full wives. So because they have, are in this liminal uh, state of waiting, they don't know what, what their complete status is. They were called half widows. So you had half widows, you had parents as well, you had fathers as well, you had brothers, you had sisters. But the majority of the uh, people, uh, the activists, were either mothers or half widows. So that was the APDP. And we kind of grew up in the early 90s looking at these women who are uh, in the public plaza, mourning, crying, and uh, looking for, searching for their sons and husbands and other beloveds. Uh, that became something that uh, I think became very iconic for all of us Kashmiris. And also, as we passed by, you could see sometimes the police would allow them to do this protest. And sometimes there would be some kind of harassment. Sometimes they would be beaten and put into these police um, vehicles and sent away. That used to happen in the early days. Uh, so that, to me, uh, became really, really a telling of what we were going through. So... Just as a lay Kashmiri, uh, for me, 
uh, this was something that uh, was in the back of my mind and sometimes it was also in the forefront because I kept thinking about what's happening to us and then there were killings and uh, rapes and all of that and we did hear of that, tortured, all of that, not just heard but we also witnessed some of it in different ways and different degrees. So that's that, that was the life of Kashmiris. So that's the 90s. And, you know, when I decided to come back to academia, I had already been working with APDP in some capacity. As a journalist, I'd worked with them. As an activist, I'd worked with them. But I also thought that uh, it was an opportune moment. There were like a couple of questions being answered uh, when you look at the APDP. And those, que those questions were, you know, in the Indian narrative, uh, when you look at Kashmiri women, most of the time what the Indian narrative, Indian media, and also Indian government, the way it tries to portray Kashmiri women is as if they have been held hostage by their patriarchy. And Kashmiri men are stereotypically demonized. They are shown as these, um, you know, quote-unquote, these Islamists who are oppressing their women under the veil and all of the, those things, those all stereotypes that uh, we can muster. And this has been a narrative in many of the, even the quote unquote, the feminist works that have come from uh, the Indian um, academia and also uh, some other, uh, you know, uh, scholars who have written about it or journalists who have written about it. So the, it was also always a very patronizing narrative that these women are held hostage by their patriarchy. So that was number one, that was also in my mind. And the second was when you look at an enforced disappearance, when you look at 8,000 to 10,000 disappearances, uh, it does make you think, like, how is it possible to disappear 10,000 people? Like, why do they get disappeared? Why do Kashmiri men disappear? And uh, what is the context? Like, you can't really say this in a vacuum that 10,000 men have been subjected to enforced disappearances. So I felt like it was a perfect uh, a way to enter into the discussion and research sort of the history of what Kashmir dispute is. And why is it that India, which is, which is considered to be one of the biggest democracies in Asia, is able to pull off such heinous crimes uh, inside Kashmir? So I thought it, it kind of like answered this, uh, this, uh, these dual questions that had, become, uh, that had become sort of propaganda in the Indian narrative. And I felt like a lot, there was a lot of literature that was propagating both these narratives, both these erroneous narratives. And I felt like uh, once um, I started embarking on my dissertation and my fieldwork, I felt like this was the most opportune uh, project that I wanted to take up, that I wanted to study. It was answering both these questions for me. And uh, that's how I um, kind of was set upon the, uh, doing this project. And I feel like once I was done with the project, I felt like it just kind of fulfilled both the aspects that I wanted to research, study, and bring forth. So um, talking about the key findings, so what, uh, so what I kind of like doing the book is, because it's an academic work, there is some theoretical work that you have to do and pay your obeisance to the academia. But then uh, because I'm an anthropologist and this is about people, it's about marginalized people. So what, we, what I have done in the entire book is talk about my uh, research partners. And um, that might, you know, when I use the word research partners or research community, that might kind of set us thinking into a direction where we know that anthropology doesn't uh, treat the people that it works with as respondents or as um, 
as subjects we treat them as partners because you know they change your perspective continuously and they are participating and contributing to your research continuously so that's um, i felt i was th these these were my partners and being a native anthropologist as well uh, i felt like there was a lot of blurriness to my positionality which i also talk about in the book not a lot but just a little bit so that the reader is aware so the key findings um you know working with this group and also largely looking at kashmir was uh, i i think um the 16 year worth of um, um you know working uh, actively uh, for uh, as an activist uh, for kashmir and uh, talking to people and talking to other scholars and researchers and filmmakers uh, we had realized that uh, kashmir is so invisibilized when you talk about kashmir within the indian narrative and also when india talks to the international forums what happens is that it presents kashmir as uh, either a bilateral dispute a territorial dispute with pakistan or uh, when it suits india's narrative it says that it's just a law and order situation so it keeps changing its narrative depending upon who it's being sold to sometimes it becomes a territorial bilateral dispute uh, sometimes it becomes pakistan's proxy war sometimes it becomes uh, a law and order situation or a domestic dispute so doing this research uh, and uh, sort of coming into contact with other scholars and in the course of this research i also co-founded critical kashmir research uh, critical kashmir studies collective with a group of of uh, co colleagues uh, who are also uh, most of them are kashmiris so what we um, what concretized in those conversations and the kind of scholarship that i was pursuing that kashmir is an occupation and that is something that has kind of uh, uh, been pushed to the back burner that it is uh, it was a de facto occupation which after the removal of 370 technically becomes a de jure occupation and that's something which uh, so so the book um, it it did end up doing the dual labor of looking at the kashmir dispute and talking about history and weaponization of democracy inside kashmir because you know when we talk even in the indian narrative and indian masses think that oh you know elections are happening in kashmir so it's an it's a democracy but uh, what i uh, found and as i was kind of looking at history and talking to people and also my own positionality that india was deploying a politics of democracy it was not real democracy it's a it's also a very illegal democracy so to speak not that democracies can be illegal but for the lack of a better um, term because the elections the very first elections in kashmir that were held they were technically illicit because united nations uh, had uh, actually actually admonished india not to hold these elections because the case was sub judice and uh, the indian government at that time had said that we are still going to do the plebiscite but we need to think about governance so it was kind of like on the basis of governance and kind of giving people uh, some form of uh, you know civil services that it was founded upon and pakistan at that time had lodged a protest and india had repeated and reiterated its promise of plebiscite so you know that that politics of democracy and how uh, india kind of like established a client state and how it also uh, generated a client politician system who were favoring india and and how dissent was curbed because if you look at um the fundamental rights chapter of in, uh, indian constitution which was extended uh, to kashmir uh, it's uh, the fundamental rights chapter of indian uh, constitution is very unique in having a clause for um a clause for uh, 
detention. So that has been rampantly used inside Kashmir. And the thing is that Kashmir had Article 370. How could it bring in so many statutes? And that's that's another discussion. But the, at the same time, uh, what my research in my research, I kind of illustrated this politics of democracy that India had pursued, that it was not real democracy. So that's one part. And also looking at how democracy was weaponized to actually kill Kashmiris and how a Kashmiri body appears as this, uh, this killable body, that it can be killed without any remorse. The nation doesn't have to mourn anything. The nation doesn't have to worry about killing this person. And that has happened over and over. That's why we have more than 70,000 human rights uh, people who have been killed and more than 10,000 disappearances and all kinds of woundings and blindings that are happening inside Kashmir and no one bats an eyelid in the, inside India. So that was one part. And the second part, I also, uh, when talking about the women, as I earlier said, that women have always been presented as if they are these oppressed subjects of these men who are all terrorists. So what came to light as I looked at the APDP activists, how they are deploying um, politics of mourning. So they might look like they are, quote unquote, only mourning, but they are mourning. They're using it as a tool because under Armed Forces Special Powers Act, you can't really meet and have uh, have a protest anywhere. So how do you meet? So, uh, so what this uh, research kind of is illuminating is that is that journey of these women from the home, from the sacred spaces outside. And most of the women in the APDP belong from to the marginalized classes. So they're not highly educated. They, they're not worldly wise, even though in the last 34 years they have changed a lot and they have learned a lot. They have been educated in the ways of the world, in the legal uh, you, you know, arenas and they go, go to courts. They know how to deal with the police and they know how to talk to the army and all of that. But at the same time, they will do belong to marginalized classes. And what my research revealed was what I kind of theorized as the affective law uh, that was kind of directly confrontational to the sovereign's law, kind of uh, posing a challenge to this hegemony of Indian government. And at the same time, uh, also uh, responding to the social um, constraints that are placed on gender. So that kind of dual journeys of these women uh, sort of traversing the constraints that the society places on them, but then the bigger challenges that the political system places and the state terror places on their lives and how they are able to uh, walk that fine balance and become activists and become these spokespeople for Kashmir's human rights and now also for Kashmir's freedom, uh, which they earlier uh, did not uh, so uh, apparently kind of accept as their mission because they would say that they are just sufferers. But over the years, as they become more and more entrenched into the activism that they're doing and they realize what they're doing is very important for the entire Kashmir region, uh, so they do take that mantle where they're talking about uh, Kashmir and liberation and talking about, you know, plebiscite and talking about, um, you know, all kinds of solutions that uh, this political dispute can have. And this was uh, very evident when in uh, 2017, Parvina Ahangar, she co-shared the Rafto Human Rights Prize in Norway uh, with Parvez Imroz. And if you look at her research, if you look at her um uh, the her statement after the, the address that she gave, it's very clear how she connects her, uh, what a lot of people had earlier said, this is just accidental activism, no doubt it is. But at the same time, how this journey has become very concerted, very concretized, 
and how she is looking at her activism as part of the resistance movement in Kashmir. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'd like to start by apologizing for bringing up painful memories, uh, but I do understand that this is also very core and very specific to the work that you're doing and drives the work that you do. So truly, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, you, you brought up two really important points, one which really stuck with me, which is about the way the narrative around women is presented in the Indian academic scene. It reminds me of something that a scholar called Zilla Eisenstein mentioned about the whole idea mm -hmm. of uh, re-racing gender, of protecting brown women from brown men. And I could mm -hmm. agree because as a recent consumer, I actually find myself faced with this kind of literature. So thank you so much for articulating that. Um, and the other thing you alluded to um, about the de jure um, occupation, it's date 55 today, the day we're recording this podcast. And um, since the date, I mean, since the actual abrogation of Article 370 was announced, and we, I think most of the people by the time this is uh, put up on our channel would have listened to the speeches in the General Assembly as well. It seems like the international community right at this moment is less invested in pressing for the rights of the people in Kashmir. So can you take us through what's running on your mind to the extent you're comfortable about this? Well, I feel um, as, as a Kashmiri, uh, and, and, and thank you for uh, being uh, so concerned and uh, you know, just uh, acknowledging that there is pain when we talk about these situations inside Kashmir, especially the human rights violations. But it's also part of uh, part of the solution is also talking about what has happened. So uh, it comes with the territory. So I do not mind at all. Uh, I wrote an entire book on something that was so painful. But at the same time, I felt like it's a it's something that we need to do. And people have gone through it. The the women that I talk about in the book, I think it's their uh, it's 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 uh, their bravado and it's their. Uh, it's their life that I have kind of uh, made evident, and in in that, uh, my trauma doesn't even compare, or my uh, pain doesn't even compare to the pain that they have felt. So, it's no problem at all talking about all of this, and uh, sort of you know thinking about Kashmir right now and Kashmiris, and people who are uh, watching the United Nations General Assembly. And Kashmir is outside the United Nations General Assembly uh, meeting uh, at, in New York right now protesting and the allies that are there in solidarity. I feel like um, it's the 55th day and uh, I have very briefly been able to every now and then connect to my parents who are back there through landline whenever it connects. Uh, we are trying to find ways and means like how can it best connect what are the different tricks that we can apply so that the landline will hold and i see all of the people on facebook and other social media trying to say you know uh, just um, dial the number and then wait for a long time there's going to be error messages let those error messages run so you see this pain that kashmiris are going through to maintain communication back home and then also know when you talk to them and when you connect to them that outside Kashmir as a diaspora, you feel like uh, we are uh, in in this in this uh, in this pursuit right now. We are trying to kind of this is an information war at the moment, and you can clearly see that as part of diaspora being in U.S. I clearly see these different uh, you know uh, these zones of. Um, quote unquote like the media zones you have western and the non uh, non-west and you have pakistan you have india 
and then you also have you know kashmiri voices so i feel like everyone is trying to get their word in and it feels like you're part of some process where some conversation is happening and then you call kashmir and you ask them how you're doing do you know what's happening outside and they can speak they can speak they they say everything is fine uh because uh maybe the phone lines are tapped i don't know if all phone lines are tapped but there is such uh there is such a psychosis inside kashmir there is so much repression um my mom she was talking about uh, you know she the, she used the kashmiri word for woven in and uh, it seems like there's army everywhere uh, the paramilitaries are everywhere it's more than uh, what they have seen uh, in the past one decade so they are really really scared so if outside you know i kind of like see and i see myself writing i see myself talking to you and similarly other people in similar situations so of course there's a blockade and we've been uh, we're not allowed to talk to our loved ones back home but at the same time we are in relative safety in a way and kind of thinking about different processes that might help and we're watching the world which is not doing much uh, as much as it should have because there are two genocide alerts against india at the moment but still the world is not um, moving in the direction it needs to towards a just peace for this for this um, region so that's one uh, uh, aspect the other aspect is kashmir so they don't know anything when i talk to my parents so those are the only people i can talk to at the moment because they have a landline and uh, my I, sometimes my siblings whoever can trickle into that house uh, the neighbors sometimes because landlines are not so common in kashmir anymore it's only a few households in entire communities that have still retained the landlines after the cell phones so uh what i see the kind of narrative that i'm getting from on ground in kashmir that there is so much hopelessness there is so much military repression there is they they don't they don't really know what's going to happen the next day they don't they don't really know when the curfew is really lifted or not and uh, that's the, so that's the hopelessness part when i and and i also know that uh, kashmiris even in their deep hopelessness they are very resilient people and as you can see all the things that i can read from while sitting in us from the very sparse conversations that i have with my parents when the phone line allows and the kind of things that they say uh, under the garb of everything is okay we are fine you stay okay um i what i can read is that kashmir has gone into its huddle that's what kashmiris do they know how to huddle they know how to preserve themselves uh not not that many people will heed that there is there are young people who are coming out pelting stones uh they're not showing any um uh, restraint or they don't care for their lives uh, and then you have more than uh, the recent report that came out that the five women um team did i don't know if they're calling it by a certain name but that's that's a report that just came back to uh, they it, it came out two days back and it reported that more than 13000 young kids have been detained so these are kids like less than uh, 17 18 years of age from 8 onwards so 13000 kids how do you comprehend 13000 kids detained and how do you comprehend more than 4000 people or 6000 people detained uh, the schools are open uh, as the government from time to time likes to say but who is going to go to those schools So as a Kashmiri what do I feel I see the diasporic narrative I see some form of movement happening but after everything is said and done 
it is an information war out and out. Uh, Indian government is telling blatant lies, such straw man arguments for removal of uh, 370 that it is selling to the rest of the world. I just wrote a piece for Asia Dialogue on this very thing, how it's talking about that it's, um, Article 370 was very discriminatory to gender rights, to minority rights. And this is with complete disregard to what the real reasons are. Uh, and what uh, Kashmir had been able to achieve under Article 370, it, it was its own nation, it was its sovereign nation, and that was acknowledged when the 370 happened. So as a Kashmiri, what do I feel right now? I feel like I am between uh, hope and hopelessness because I have, I, I have seen such processes ha happen over and over where um, Indian propaganda has taken our very genuine narrative and it has sold to the entire world as something uh, as a, it packages as terrorism. And the world is more than ready to buy it because it sits on a, India sits on a billion dollar, billion, billions worth uh, free market. And at the same time, uh, the, I, the Islamophobia that has taken over the entire world, uh, when they hear a Muslim community is under siege, uh, I don't think people really uh, want to think more about it because they kind of think that something must be going on. So I feel like this veil of Islamophobia and uh, the specter of neoliberalism, they both are helping India invisibilize Kashmir. And that's what's been happening for the pa past 15 years now actively. And it's not only other, uh, under BJP that this has kind of um, taken a shift. They're just more spectacular in what they do. Now, but Kashmir has been uh, invisibilized in the same manner since the last 33 years and of course put on the back burner for the last 72 years. So that's where I am as a Kashmiri. But I do see a lot of hope because I also see a lot of solidarity. I mean, uh, even this podcast for that matter, it's a small tiny ray of hope in this vast darkness of India that, that I see as darkness at the moment for Kashmiris. So there are solidarities and I feel like these are building and they might be something that are going to help us deliver the kind of just peace we need. And it might be a long haul, but uh, you know, the hope is still there. I can't imagine how difficult and painful it must be to you know, go through so much effort just to be able to maintain communication with your parents and for everyone there to be in such a state of constant anxiety, hopelessness, fear and alertness. And, Despite um, the hope and resilience that we've talked about, it's just truly heartbreaking to hear. So I just want to thank you deeply for sharing your thoughts and we apologize unconditionally if we triggered you in any sort of way. No, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Thank you. Um, so with regards to the arguments proposed about uh, the abrogation of Article 370, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on development and economic progress. but these without transitional justice and the empathy for the rights of the people is really no way to address an ongoing conflict of 70 plus years um, in which people's voices have been suppressed and silenced. So do you believe in a transitional justice approach to addressing the rights of the people in Kashmir? And if it were to be realized, what would that look like? I feel like transitional justice is a good rubric and it's a it's a good structure to follow. But at the same time, where are we applying it? I feel like Kashmir, the transitional justice happens in a post-conflict situation. And I feel 
or maybe it can happen uh, if there are mechanisms where it can happen while the conflict is ongoing and some sort of resolution is being concretized but at the same time kashmir is a problem which needs you know if the political solution is delivered most of the things uh, and transitional justice uh, structures are also going to be mobilized so at the moment who do you uh, sort of like who do we see this mechanism with uh, kashmiris indian government uh, has the armed forces special powers act under which it is uh, creating all the repression that it is it's, it it has made it legal to do whatever it is doing which includes from killings to rapes to blindings of kashmiris so all of this it comes under afspa so at the moment uh, until an, uh, an, until it's a disturbed area and until afspa is there how do you envisage transitional justice that addresses rights of kashmiri people that's one number two uh, kashmiris are demanding so so the one of the dangers in um, uh, sort of like talking only about human rights abuses in kashmir is that the political narrative gets invisibilized when we say uh, kashmir is a human rights issue the army is doing this the army is doing that and uh, uh, you know these many killings and all of that i think what, what a lot of people get interested but at the same time many times it also invisibilizes uh, what is bringing forth and what is leading to these human rights abuses which is the political context so many times you know even the border security force and army it has a human rights cell can you imagine that uh, a human rights cell that takes care of human rights complaints i don't know what they have been doing for the past one decade but i heard that both of that most of the paramilitaries and the military they have these offices that they open for uh, entertaining people's uh, complaints and trying to look at human rights abuses but uh, it seems like a joke because um, so far the 53 cases that had been sent to the home ministry because under afspa you cannot uh, try any uh, military personnel and uh, they have to be tried by the military court and the ministry of home affairs is responsible for all of that and then the files that have gone i think there are 53 cases that have gone and they're all in cold storage nothing has happened so you have that kind of a situation inside kashmir and at the same time this is going to continue till there is a political dispute which means where uh, there is no plebiscite or there is no other uh, dialogue happening uh, which kind of like sees the solution between um, uh, both the kashmiris and also indian administered kashmir with india so unless and until that doesn't happen unless and until there is no political um, solution to the problem i do not see afspa being lifted and i do not see the abuses stopping i do not see this as a post conflict situation it's a conflict that's active and that can grow bigger even though the government doubts that indian government doubts that 370 is something that's going to you know help the situation it's not going to help it's just a straw man argument that they have used and that they used to blind people uh the international community especially uh so i don't i don't really see that going away so thinking about transitional justice makes me think about how does the conflict end first and a conflict only ends when there is a political dialogue uh so that's where i am regarding this thank you so much for articulating that and i really appreciate that you put it in perspective um because it's it's very important to look at the political narrative as well speaking of which you actually 
put that together in the form of a desolation of peace, you've actually created a massive tapestry of multiple voices that actually create this context. Um, could you tell us a little bit about putting that book together and what really went into the process? I do remember reading it was a four-year-long process, but would love to hear it from your side. It was a four-year-long process, but I think in my mind, it was the germ of an idea was uh, there long back. I wanted to... So here's the thing. You know, when Kashmiris, they sit with each other uh, or they have these post-dinner conversations. Uh, growing up, I, I, I saw that there was a there was a change of register like when we talked outside when i heard my elders talk outside and when even i grew up and i talked outside initially so we would talk there, there would be a sanitized version of uh, talking but when we talked inside and when we talked with each other uh, you could see that there was lots of politics there was a lot of connection with pakistan there was a lot of connection with and and, and I'd, I'd like to say what now is pakistan and not Pakistan uh, before 1947, because there was no Pakistan before 1947. It was all one huge swath of a region uh, that was um, part of it was also, uh, you know, Kashmir and uh, the princely region uh, up to Gilgit Baltistan and uh, all of the other uh, frontiers. So it, it was Kashmir. I had heard these stories from my grandfather when he was in the Punjab University and, um, you know, talking about all of those times. And then it, there was this a different narrative uh, that you heard, but that wasn't really palpable either. It was in writing in some form, but mostly in Urdu and also in Kashmiri, not a lot in English. Uh, I think in the 80s, some people began writing about it and history in, in, in English so that it kind of... Uh, trickled to people like us who were who were kept away from uh, studying Kashmiri because Kashmiri was not taught in schools at all. We were really, really uh, kept away from our language. We did speak it, but we didn't write it. We didn't read it. Uh, we had to train ourselves to do that. And then Urdu was also something that we didn't really read as readily because everything was uh, that we had to study English and English was the thing that could give you a career uh, down the line. And that wasn't just Kashmir. I think that's the entire subcontinent. It's a post-colonial uh, Malays. So at the same time, this book, um, talking about... So what I wanted, I kind of like thought that what if I was to... So when, when the government talks to the Indian masses, it says uh, Kashmir is a proxy war. When the government, Indian government, talks to its masses, it says, you know, all of this happened in 1989. People, it says, Pakistan was always the Pakistan it is, and it's considered to be this terrorist state, and that's the stereotype. And it's shown as if there was a vacuum with Kashmir before, like as if there was no linkage. And all of these narratives I had had as I was growing up and my friends and my family, all of us used to kind of hear those narratives. And I thought, um, we need to talk like this to the Indians, especially the reasonable uh, Indians who are still willing to believe that there is, there is a, there's a shared humanity between us and that this can be solved very humanely by respecting people's wishes. So I thought to put this together where... Uh, I brought in people who had uh, writers especially and maybe professors or journalists and whoever wanted to contribute, uh, who had grown up between, say, 1947 to 1989 because they had seen that period. So 
I, I was really interested in someone who had grown up in the 50s because the stories that person could tell you in the 50s about what was happening in Kashmir, how they, in every decade, Kashmiris had been really, really waiting for some resolution for Palabasite. Uh, when, when I say Palabasite, there is a large section of Kashmiris that really love and have a relationship, have a cultural, historical, religious, and blood relation with Pakistan. And when we say Pakistan, I think that is such a hugely misunderstood motive in India. Uh, as a country, of course, but also as a motive because it's used as a shorthand for everything that is anti-India. Because, of course, it it kind of was brought forth from uh, this idea of a separate country. So, yes, of course, there are negative emotions attached to it. But I also felt like it's a service to be telling Indians that Pakistan might be something that you're against at the moment. And BJP is kind of packaging it more and more in those terms. But at the same time, this was this was one large sweat. It was one place, so to speak. And Kashmiris had all the linkages. Like when the Maharaja signed the standstill agreement, he first signed it with Pakistan. Of course, India refused. But uh, he signed it with uh, Pakistan because the salt was coming from Pakistan. The essential supplies were coming from that region. It was still not Pakistan at that. Uh, uh, it was. But before it wasn't. It was uh, just part of um, what was um, siding with his kingdom, what had frontiers with his kingdom. Yeah, it was a long project, as all edited volumes are, but uh, there were several reasons. One was uh, the, uh, I don't know if you remember, 2014 was the year of the flood, and we had several writers who had uh, almost written final pieces and they lost them. And that was a major tragedy for a lot of Kashmiris. They lost their work because the waters rose so high and all of that. And this book was also uh, kind of impacted by that. Um, so, and, uh, and what this book tries to do is, I, I think uh, this was when I was growing up, I also did not know a lot of my history. And that's because we in school, read a lot of Indian history and world history, but Kashmiri history was not part of our curriculum at all. So that was one thing. The other thing is um, I also um, knew of my Indian friends. I knew of uh, my Indian counterparts. And I also know what the Indian media narrative is, as if what the hap what's happening in Kashmir at the moment is something that just grew up, grew in the last 30 years, as if it has no history, as if it's all a Pakistan proxy war or a part of whatever global terrorism that it's made out to be now. So I felt like all of these, um, so the history part and thinking about the narratives in the Indian um, media and Indian uh, sort of like the research arenas around Kashmir, I felt like there was a la lacuna, that there was a gap that people needed to know that this is, that, that there is a history to what's happening in Kashmir. It's not just the last 30 years. And I had heard all of those narratives growing up, which kind of gave me the history which I did not get from the school, which I did not get from the classroom. So those narratives would happen. There would be an old uncle, your father, your grandfather, someone's grandfather. They'd be talking after dinner and they'd be talking about these uh, memories. They would be talking about what is now Pakistan, what at that time was not Pakistan, but either uh, the other side of, um, you know, the other part of uh, the princely state. So all of those things, I felt like uh, in the last 70 years, there was so much obfuscation that had happened and there were so many layers that had been added by the Indian government to what Kashmir is. 
so that it could be made into the integral part as they perceive it as. Uh, but what what was being taken away was the Kashmiri memory. So I felt like if we had these memoiristic pieces where most of the people that I had invited uh, talked about their childhood, talked about how their political consciousness uh, evolved, emerged, the genesis of their political consciousness, and kind of like addressed uh, the readers who would either be Indians or who could be global audience or Kashmiris themselves, even younger Kashmiris who, who are not yet exposed to these narratives in the same manner I was growing up, even though now it's in a different intense manner, but, you know, concretize it for them, put it in the same place for them in a book form, then it would be easy for us to go over these 12 narratives and see how uh, Kashmiris have uh, evolved in the political struggle and how this is a very historical struggle. It has really, the genesis of it has to do with what the genesis of India's own freedom struggle is which is uh, throwing the yoke of foreign oppression. So that's, that's what Kashmir is about. And when you look at those narratives from the 1950s, one of the professors, Professor Malik, talks about his childhood in the 50s when he was a young child. He talks about the political situation of that time. He talks about his parents. He talks about his grandmother. And he talks about uh, one of the earliest, one of the tallest leaders in Kashmiri uh, history who really, really, um, towards the end of his life, because of the policies that he uh, had with India and the kind of capitulations that he did, uh, fell out of favor with people. But initially, he was one of the tallest leaders for Kashmir sovereignty and Kashmiri nationalism. He was an icon. He talks about him. So I, in my mind, I, uh, I was kind of imagining when an Indian reader reads this, they kind of know what the situation was at that time, not through a history lesson, but through an ethnographic memory, through a memoiristic piece. And it's very hard to refute memoiristic pieces. It's very hard to refute faces who are being genuinely honest to you. So then there is a poet, and he talks about his filibicide poem and how he had read that and how he had kind of addressed, again, some of the politicians of his time. And that book gives you a sense of how in every decade Kashmiris have waited for some sort of a solution. Filibicide, of course, but it also shows you how the feeling for independence and freedom has grown. Because, you know, United Nations resolutions, they either offer you the post-colonial tragedies, either you have to go with India, either with Pakistan. They do not offer you an independent uh, state. Um, so the push, because of the push was for larger, bigger democracies, because they were seen as manageable. So, uh, but that book also shows you how that genesis for Indian independence, sorry, uh, Kashmiri independence kind of grows. And um, Andrew Whitehead in his book talks about how, uh, you know, in 1947, majority of Kashmiris were for independence and some of them were for Pakistan. And uh, there was a section that was for India, uh, but majority was for uh, independence. But then there is also an affective relation with Pakistan that, that refuses to seize inside Kashmir. And that is something that, that India has to come to terms with. Because if you look at the huge swath of region, it's uh, the same cultural religion, uh, kind of like uh, going from in different shades. So that's something that uh, India has to agree to. I mean, not, not that the agreement is needed, but they have to accept and acknowledge that these are the same people culturally. And they are geographically more attuned to that side than it is to the Indian side. So all of those linkages uh, emerge in the book. 
they emerge through uh, different time uh, periods. In the early 50s, uh, they are in the 60s, they kind of emerge like how these people were linked together. And today when Kashmiris side with the cricket match, when uh, with Pakistan, when it's a cricket match, uh, it's of course political, but it's also that because there have been, there are historical ties to that region and people see them as uh, part of the same fabric. So that's something that book does bring to light, which also helps to answer this question of Pakistan's proxy war, the reduction that India has done, and as, as if it, it's it, 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 it as if Pakistan comes in a vacuum when it does inside Kashmir. It doesn't come in a vacuum. My grandfather had his degrees from Punjab or Lahore, I think Punjab University, and same goes for most of our forefathers and whoever had education in those times, uh, some traveled to Aligarh Muslim University, but most of them traveled to Karachi and Lahore for education. Uh, so those linkages, where do, where do they go after the forcible borders are drawn? Uh, you know, where do they go when, once this region is torn asunder in such an arbitrary manner? So you have to think about peoples, you have to think about cultures, and uh, suddenly you feel like, uh, you know, people on that side of the border are different. That doesn't happen and that has not happened with Kashmiris um, even till this point in moment. Uh, of course, there is LOC and you have two Kashmiris. Uh, so that's that's something that doesn't come out in the book as much. But hopefully if there's a sequel, we are going to be kind of going towards that aspect as well, talking about the other side of Kashmir. Thank you so much for beautifully articulating um, your thoughts about the book, Ms. Atar. Um, I particularly love the emphasis on people and the culture, the memories, and you know, the extremely strong empathetic aspect uh, of what you've shared. So speaking about Kashmiri memories and literature from the diaspora, can you tell us about the online journal out, uh, outlet that you founded, Kashmir Lit? Yeah, Kashmir Lit is like, it start, I started it in 2008. I felt like... Uh, internet was such a good uh, medium. Um, cu currently, Kashmiris don't have internet, but I felt like uh, Kashmiris were writing a lot. You know, when people are under repression, something happens, everyone becomes a poet. And Kashmir is such a place where uh, you have lots of Kashmiri poets, and they are very... Um, you know, they're, they're weaved into your daily life, into the daily ritual of living. So sometimes women who might be facing domestic travails, uh, they will speak of Haba Khatun and her songs. And some people might do Shamas Fakir for something. And if you're feeling extremely mystical or nationalistic, so you have all kinds of poets. So I also noticed I, was, I uh, write poetry myself. I write short fiction. So I always felt like I'm always looking for platforms. And then I also noticed that Greater Kashmir and most of the, the because I'd been a media person as well, I had noticed that there used to be an, there used to be a lot of uh, young people who used to write. And in the early 90s, as I was growing up, I was still uh, in college. I was also editing a magazine. Um, uh, it was it was an Urdu. It was an Urdu poetry magazine, a literary magazine called Jihad, meaning dimensions. Uh, so. In, so we had a lot. So it was an Urdu magazine, but we had a lot of English poetry come in. We had a lot of English um, fiction come in that people were writing. So, so I had this sense that uh, in the early '90s and kind of like moving through the '90s and coming towards 2000s, I felt like Kashmiris are writing. Where do we put this? How do we consolidate this? Because most of the poetry, if you see, 
it is full of pain and it's full of trauma. It's full of the impact of the repression, the impact of military occupation. It's everywhere. It's like a, it's like a, it's impinged on each of the pieces, most of the pieces that I read. So that was one motivation, like to make a platform where uh, we get all these narratives together and uh, so that people do not have to, it kind of like, I, I wanted it to be the first stepping stone for anyone who is uh, writing in Kashmir and wanted a platform. And the second aspect of it was that we also started conducting workshops, some online, uh, some in Kashmir with help of different writers and journalists and poets. So people who are interested in writing, um, they would come and they would talk about their work and then we would workshop that work and we would publish that. Uh, so that became another um, sort of rubric for uh, Kashmir Lit to work. So basically, uh, it's a, I see this as, uh, as a platform which probably is the first uh, stepping stone uh, for a lot of Kashmiris before they make a foray into uh, you know, bigger things in the world, bigger platforms, bigger publishers. So that was my motivation to kind of like open up a platform so that we have we have some space to talk about Kashmir. And you will see there are a lot of narratives um, that um, sometimes what happens is that they don't get accepted elsewhere and we do publish them because um, where else uh, can we go? Kashmiri narratives are not accepted everywhere. So many times that happens that Someone writes a beautiful piece and uh, it doesn't get accepted because that viewpoint is not acceptable to that publishing house. Uh, so they come back to Kashmir Lit and that's where we publish them. So that's how I see it. I see it as a repository of all these enduring articles on Kashmir. If people want to know what Kashmiri people are saying, what the people in diaspora are saying. Um, sadly, it's not been, uh, we don't have a ton of funding. It's on a shoestring budget. So. Uh, it's it's not developing as much as I would have loved it to, but it's still running, and that's a big thing for me. More power to you, Athar. Uh, what you've created with Kashmir Lit is tremendously impactful, and I can imagine um, how how difficult it must also be for you to engage with the poetry, to understand the empathy, and to also feel the pain you yourself um, are, are triggered to feel because of it. One of the pieces on the platform that stays with me is, um, was by Shabir Ahmed Mir, and I think it was called When the War is Over. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm sorry, but I'm just so inspired to bring this up because it's beautiful. Um, his, his, he starts with these beautiful times. When the war is over and you can come over to our side, I will put your finger into the holes left by bullets and pellets, and you will feel how much they hurt still. And um, these lines, they remain with me. Um, they've been with me ever since I read them. So thank you for holding space, truly, for making that pain uh, find an outlet and, and for the world to be able to see that. So truly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for holding it you know, in a treasured manner. That means a lot. So from there, you know, you talked about the impact um, of the conflict and this, this reminds me of your other book, Resisting Disappearance and uh, the narrative of women's activism with respect to the military occupation in Kashmir. Um, so before we, we wind up the session, we'd love to know about this book and what motivated its creation. So the, the motivation for this book was uh, they... Uh, to me, enforced disappearance was also very personal because there was someone uh, from my very close circle who had disappeared in the neighborhood. And his mother would always be outside. And 
she earlier was just a regular woman, a regular mom around the neighborhood. But over a period of time when her son disappeared, she kind of fell into this um, strange mindset where, where she could only, like you could only call her crazy because she would be asking, you know, about her son. She would be asking if someone had seen him. And she was also functional. She was kind of leading her life, but she also had this side to her. And she wasn't the only one. Uh, in my uh, job as a journalist as and also as a human rights activist, uh, when I would kind of travel, I would see all of these um, these women who had the, the, these strange things were happening to them. And this was all um, issues of mental health and issues of psychological health that were kind of creeping up and surfacing in their lives. They also led weirdly functional lives, like they cooked, they cleaned, but you could also tell something was not right. And that was the enforced disappearance. And I, I had also seen uh, these women from the APDP, they would be in this public plaza and they would be crying, mourning, protesting, shouting slogans. Sometimes they would be harassed and beaten and thrown into vehicles. And some sometimes I would witness that if they were passing by, but most of the times you would see them in the newspapers, like the you, you had pictures come in the newspapers when such things happened. So there was this woman, uh, she was in the, this remote village in North Kashmir, her husband had been disappeared and she only had one son. I remember uh, once she uh, got this picture of her husband. It's a very hazy picture. I uh, still have it. Uh, I, I took a picture of the picture and she, would, she was not um, in the right state mentally. Uh, she had also some kind of form of psychosis that was happening. She, she, she was under treatment as well. But again, she has a, had a functional side where she was farming a little. Uh, sometimes she was not farming when she fell into depression. And she also had all these fears around her safety and the safety of her son. So she bought this little picture and uh, she said uh, she wanted me to uh, kind of like blow it up so that I can make it a bigger picture. And I haven't written about her in the book yet because I felt like her narrative um, is completely different. And it, it kind of, um, I didn't want it to be with others because uh, it's still, it's, it's, it's more painful and it, it requires a different kind of uh, treatment. It requires a different kind of respect that probably uh, might be as a separate paper at some point in time. But this little incident where she would always, so I did blow it up for her and that was her husband's picture. And she would always talk about him as her, um, as a bridegroom. And then uh, she also had a grown son. So all of these things, these, these women who had lost so much and who would at one point, they are these activists going against the government, going against the state, fighting these cases. On the other side, you had uh, them also as vulnerable women who uh, are not financially well off, who, are, uh, who have all sorts of issues going on, their health and their mental health, their physical health, everything is impacted by what has happened. But then you also, so all of these things kind of combined in my mind and I thought that they answer a couple of questions like how do people, how does every day happen under such repression? How do you how do you carry out the daily um, daily business of living the everyday which it's a trope in anthropology studying every day but I felt like our answer was in the everyday as well I felt the answer was in this woman's insistence uh, that uh, one of the women in the book 
uh, she insisted to, she wanted to keep the door open all the time. And when I first met her, uh, and that's where I kind of like, uh, where the book begins also, uh, with the story of Zuna, uh, who I met, uh, I think 10 or 11 years back, it was really, really cold winter. And when I entered her shanty, it was a small house. It could have been like, you know, just pushed down and it could have been gone. Uh, she was sitting inside, but she didn't close the door. And I thought I would close the door because it was really chilly. And she's like, no, 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 leave it a little open. And I said, uh, shouldn't we close it? Aren't you cold? And she's like, no, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of choking. And she used a couple of Kashmiri words and I do note them in the book. And I thought it was just a one-time thing. So she's feeling a little feverish. She's feeling a little choking. But then I noticed that that's what she did every day. Uh, that was her thing. She just kept the door open. And then when we started talking about it, uh, she was actually, um, uh, you know, it was a sign of waiting. So to me, it became a deep ethnographic space of engagement with waiting, with a resistance. And then she also noticed, and I do do uh, use a little bit of like uh, poetry at the start of each section and most of them are inspired by these conversations with the women and in uh, i mean for the sake of terming them within anthropology we call it ethnographic poetry so this woman she would always um, keep the door open at the same time uh, you know when there's a curfew when you have to close the door so she would really tell me like in a very brave tone she would tell me she doesn't clo close the door even when there is a curfew. She doesn't fear any police because what was the most prized and what was the most valuable to her, her son has been taken away. Now she has no fear. So that's what I began to sort of see that that really inspired and humbled me. And I felt like um, we, we have to tell the story. We have to tell the story of these women. And because it answers the agency of Muslim women in this uh, in this environment, it also answers how they are, uh, you know, traversing this this structure, this social patriarchal structure, but at the same time, this hegemonic military structure as well. And I began to see this as an affective law uh, that it is their law of their own. It's a law of every day where they're using all the tools that they can as women, as these vulnerable women in these non-hegemonic spaces where they're utilizing everything that they can to look for their beloveds, to look for their kin. So that was uh, what really uh, concretized this for me when I was talking to them. And I felt like in my preliminary research, I felt like this was, this was perfect for me to uh, bring forth and kind of like help uh, make evident for the world. Because, you know, this story, otherwise it's just a story. Uh, most of the media, when they would write about these women, they would, and especially the Indian media, um, and some media in Kashmir, who of course are very sympathetic because uh, the headlines would be poor mother um, mourns for her son, poor mother this. And if someone would, one of the these APDP women, if they passed away, they'd be like, poor mother died pining for her son. And I kept thinking that they're not just poor mothers. Of course, mother is an exalted status in our um, in our part of the world. We see it differently, the ethics of motherhood and the power it has. Of course, that's a thing. But at the same time, these are activists who have been active for the last 34 years. They deserve to be called human rights activists. And these are women who are doing it despite any kind of incentive. No, not one of the disappeared has been found so far. So they're continuously doing their activism day in and day out. They come from remote villages to sit in that uh, public park. So it needed to be said because it was kind of like uh, bringing forth the agency of Kashmiri women 
um, looking at in context of the social and the political, but at the same time, it was also talking about the uh, political situation of Kashmir and how it's not only a human rights problem. And just talking about it in context of human rights problem would be to invisibilize it. Because what if tomorrow government of India decides that it's not going to do any human rights abuses? Will the problem sto stop? No, because that's not the re real problem. That's one of the uh, fallouts. That's one of the aftermaths of what happens when people start demanding their political rights. So I saw, uh, talking about the APDP and the resistance of women, I felt like that was, that was a perfect place for me to talk about both and bring forth how Kashmir dispute cannot be solved unless and until uh, we do not address uh, the political problem. Ms. Atar, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And we're very grateful to you for lending us your voice and your stories on our podcast. And we thank you so much for sharing all your experiences and thoughts with us and all of our listeners. Uh, this has probably been one of the most informative, uh, timely, and emotional conversations that we've ever had the privilege of uh, featuring on Feminifesto. So we've truly learned a tremendous amount from you. Thank you so much once again. Thank you so much, Vaishnavi and Kirti. Uh, it's been an honor, and I'm just so happy that we got to have this conversation. Thank you.